Well, here we are at the end of John's gospel, and that continuation of the, the extremes, one into the other, um, that John was just talking about, and that song references, um, is, really, is really a big part of what we're going to be talking about today. At the end of John's gospel, we're down to the last few verses, and here we are, what has been accomplished, what was intended to be accomplished has been accomplished. Jesus has come, he has experienced life as a human being, lived as a man, um, all the way through the stages, he has lived as a human being, as a baby, as a child, an adolescent, an adult. Um, he has died, and he's been resurrected. Thomas has doubted and then been convinced here at the end. Peter has denied his Savior and has been restored here at the end. And Jesus, as John intended, has been introduced. If you go back to his thesis statement of John 20, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That by believing you may have life in his name. This has been accomplished. We have enough here to be persuaded to faith in him. Using faith here as an action verb, which we don't have in English, but they do in the Greek, so that we can faith in him. We have enough. There's enough there uh, to see him as the Christ, the chosen one, the anointed one, the Messiah, the divine second person of the Trinity, God's own son, the one who has purchased eternal life starting now in his own name. So now, for those who are his followers, we soak in the joy of the word made flesh. We rest in the joy that God came near. We sing for the joy that he will someday make all things new. The whole curse restored. Talk more about that in a minute. This was the plan up to this point. We talked about this as one of the themes of the book of John, is that God is the one in charge in the book of John. Jesus is the one in charge. When things are not the right time, that happens the way it needs to happen. When it comes the right time, then it is the right time, and Jesus causes things to happen. This has been the process all through this. He has, Jesus has been in charge from the beginning to the ending. It didn't spiral out of control for him. It wasn't that the, the devil pulled a fast one on him and got him crucified. It was that Jesus drags all of humanity to the cross. Um, they all mess it up. He gets everybody there. This is what needed to happen um, up to this point. That was the plan. The plan has been fulfilled. This was the plan created before the creation of time that God put into place and has lived out. And now the first step of plan A, which God only does plan A's, is that the first step of plan A was that Jesus Christ would come, experience life as a man, and purchase redemption in the ministry of reconciliation for us to him. There we go. But before we're done with the book, John needs to clear something up. Apparently, a rumor has started. Now, there's a lot of irony here in the end of this section, the book of John, in this deeply theological text that has so much to teach us, and we've spent two years studying it, and we could honestly easily start the beginning of January with John chapter 1 and start over and probably cover all brand new material for the next two years, and don't think I'm not tempted. <laughs> I actually am a little bit, honestly, I am, I am a little bit anxious about teaching something other than John. Um, uh, I'm, I'm curious to see how this works out for me. So that may be all I can do. The, this, is, uh, this is a powerful thing that we've gotten to do to this point, but there's an irony. Apparently a rumor has started. So remember, the Gospels aren't written until decades after the events happen. We're going to talk about why that happened as well. Um, but fundamentally, it's that God didn't send them out to write. He sent them out to tell, and so that's what they did for 30 years. And it was only near the end of their lives as they began to realize we may not survive. Like, Jesus may not come back before we die. We better get this stuff down. And their students are telling them, we need to put this stuff in writing and get it done. And, 
And in fact, a lot of the Gospels are probably the, the strong encouragement, if not the direct writing, like the book of Mark, of the students of the apostles. They were going to go tell. But a rumor had started, and apparently John wants to fix that. So here at the end of the book of John, the rumor had started that John was not going to die. That John was going to live until Jesus came back. That was the rumor that had started in the early church. And John decides to use precious paragraphs, one precious paragraph, here at the end of the book of John to clear that up. Now that alone should be a teachable thing for us as the church. John's going to tell us in verse 25, the last verse, that there's so many stories that John could have filled all the books of the world, that he just ran out of space and time to write down the accounts of Jesus. But one precious paragraph had to be wasted because church couldn't stop a rumor. Have we not changed in 2,000 years or what? And it's amazing. A rumor has started in the church, and John's going to have to waste some time here to clear up the rumor. So here's what happens. Jesus and Peter Jesus has now restored Peter. He's even given Peter this amazing thing at the end, you know, that Jesus has come this last step. If you haven't heard that, if you don't know about that, you need to go back the last two weeks online and listen to them, um, and it'll make this make more sense to you. But, but here, this, Peter has been fully restored. The, the relationship, the fellowship between Jesus and Peter is fully restored, and Peter and Jesus are walking. Peter, Jesus had just told Peter to follow him, which certainly is a big general term, the reclamation of Peter as his follower, but also may be as simple as Jesus going, okay, follow me real quick. And so Jesus and Peter start walking, and Peter is running through his brain. I'm going to die for my faith. That's what's going to happen. My, my, I'm going I'm to be a martyr for Jesus. Um, I'm going I'm to die for him someday. And, and Peter's probably rejoicing in this and is a little bit nervous about it at the same time. And just kind of naturally, he does what all siblings do, although not literally siblings in this case, but he does what all siblings do when something gets told to you about one of your siblings is you go, well, what about that one? Right? I got four gifts. How many did he get? Or I'm going to have this horrible thing happen to me. Well, what about him? I'm going to die for you. They're going to take me and they're going to dress me in a way I don't want and do to me, do to me things I don't want them to do. Or what about him? So that's what happens. Peter turns and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. By the way, John wants you to make sure you know now, in case you wondered, who this disciple whom Jesus loved has been throughout the whole book, and he's going to give, away, give that away now. The one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? Everyone knows that that's John. So the author himself is now referencing himself in this again. But Peter turns and sees that disciple and says, Lord, uh, then he, Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord... What about this man? I'm going to die for you. What about him? And Jesus says, it's none of your business. Like every good parent, right? You, you focus on Peter, right? Peter, you need to focus on Peter now, not on John. You, need to fo you have plenty to work on, Peter. You need to be working on Peter now. Let's not talk about John now. Okay, it's very clearly what's going on. But unfortunately, Jesus makes a snarky little comment at the beginning, as parents sometimes do with this, a little bit of a smart aleck comment, and here's what happens. So when Peter says, what about this man? And Jesus said, listen. He doesn't say that, but that's, I, that's what he said. He says, listen, if it was my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? So Jesus throws out this, ex this extreme example. Yes, you're going to die for me. What about him? Listen, if I decided to let him stay alive forever, that's none of your business. That's all Jesus is saying here. That's none of your business. Why are you focusing on John already? 
I just restored you to ministry and told you to feed my sheep. And already the next sentence out of your mouth is, what about him? Like, would you please stay focused? Peter, stay on target here for a man, for a minute, man. Okay, let's just stay fo- So anyway, Peter is still Peter. Notice being restored to Jesus Christ doesn't change some of our established habit patterns, doesn't change our personality quirks. It doesn't cure us of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. That's Peter's still there, right? So I think that's probably what's going on. Now, it is also possible, by the way, that Peter is, feels so honored in this, and he wants to share that honor with John. And so if, if that makes you feel better to come in it that way, that is also a very real possibility that Peter's going, wow, I get to die for you. What about him? Both are beautiful in their own way. So Peter says that. Jesus says, listen, if I wanted to live forever, which, by the way, would be my prerogative, why would that be your problem? You follow me. Focus on yourself. In other words, let's not get some big rumor started about John. This isn't John's issue. And what's the response of the early church? To start a rumor about John. It's exactly the point that Jesus is trying to avoid here. Stop worrying about everybody else. Worry about you. What about your ministry? You follow me. That's your job. And the early church has now turned this into a rumor. And John has to take precious moments to correct it. No, no. It isn't that Jesus said that he was not going to die. It's that Jesus said, if it's my will that you remain until I come, what is that to you? John wants you to understand Jesus was using an example. He was not proclaiming something. This was Jesus making a a point, a hyperbole. He just wanted to make a point. That's it. Can we move on? You got to imagine John is sick of this, right? Everywhere he goes, oh, you're the one who's going to live forever. Dadgummit, I got to tell the story again. Like, no, I'm not going to live. Like, this is a, and by the way, it couldn't help the fact that John had, they had tried to martyr John twice and failed. So he'd been pushed off of a roof to kill him and he'd walked away from it and they boiled him in oil and he'd walked away from that. That couldn't have helped this rumor at all. Like, see, told you. Like, that's a, eventually though, he died. Talk more about that. Once more for John. And I have to comment on this. Again, if it is your temptation in any way to believe that this is a bunch of writings by a bunch of people who are trying to invent a religion, explain this. Why would anyone put this in an invented religion account? This makes no sense. This is John correcting a rumor because it's real. This feels as real as it could possibly feel. John has just written this beautiful work of art, one of the greatest things of literature that's ever been produced. If it wasn't so powerful, it would be studied in schools. The problem with the book of John is it's too powerful. It might change your life, not just, not just study it for literary value. It is, it is breathtakingly beautiful to study it. It's considered by some, people will argue against it because they will say there's no way that a fisherman from Galilee could write this beautifully. Now, they underestimate the power of devotion to God and the power of the Holy Spirit. But that's what's going on here. This is, this is a great, beautiful thing. It's realistic. It's very real. And then we get this final concept for us to unpack just a little more, and that's this. Verse 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, this word, witness and testimony, same root word in the Greek. Uh, the verb and the noun. The root word is where we get the word martyr. It means to proclaim something about someone else, to testify. It means to like to be called as a witness in a trial. John likes this word. This is one of John's main themes in all of his writings. 
In between John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the, the letters and Revelation, this word shows up more than 150 times in his writings. Dozens of times in the book of John have we run into it. It's one of the main themes that we see. The testimony, the telling of the gospel from the mountain, over the hills, and everywhere. This had just begun. This is the way the story continues and has continued. See, it starts right at the And by the way, I'm going to start in John 1.14 to read a little section here. We've already skipped two or three usages of this word. It shows up so fast. But John 1.14 is one of the most potent ones to show you. This is what John has been about. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, meaning the, John the Baptist here bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is what the book of John is. It is person after person after person giving testimony to who Jesus is and then Jesus giving testimony to who God the Father is. Jesus giving testimony to what eternal life is. He's the only one who knows. No one else gets to talk about it. He actually says that in the book of John. Jesus says, no one's been there and then come here to talk about it. So no one else gets to teach about this but me. No one else's opinion matters. Everyone else can have an opinion. That's cute. It's sweet. I'm glad you have an opinion. Only I have the authority to speak on these matters. So he claims that very clearly. I am the only witness to the truth of, the, of God the Father and of eternal life. So I teach about these things no one else gets to. So John the Baptist for several chapters is the focus of his witness. And we get witness after witness. Here's a few of them. The life of John the Baptist, obviously, we get that Jesus is the light of the world. Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, that Jesus is the one who knows them. The wedding at Cana, that he is the greatest. Those of the temple, that he's the zealot. From Nicodemus, that he's the teacher. From the Samaritan woman at the well, that he is the living water. From the official, that he is the answer to hope. The man at Bethesda, that he's the only chance. The thousands fed, that he is the bread of life. Those at the Feast of Booths, that he is the glory of God. The man born blind, that he is the sight. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, that he is the resurrection and the life. The crowds, that he is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. From Pontius Pilate, that he is the king of the Jews. From the disciples, that he is the suffering servant. From the Sanhedrin, that he is the great I am. From Mary Magdalene, that he is her Lord. From Thomas, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. From Peter, that he is the restorer of the soul. From John, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. There's someone for each of us to connect to in this book. For each for us to hear from the witnesses and the testimony about who he is and then his testimony about who we are and who God is and eternal life forever. And here's what's wild. As we connect with these people, and I hope you have, I hope as we've studied these people, you have felt a connection to the woman at the well unwanted and unloved and rejected. I hope you have felt a connected, a connection to the Apostle Peter being restored and Jesus coming to final steps to him. I hope you've made a connection with Mary Magdalene. I hope with, as with each of these people, as we study them, I hope there's been a connection to that. I know that's important for us. But know that the changes happening in these people's lives have been us watching Jesus work. Been us watching Jesus work in their lives to change them 
to transform them into something from what they merely were into what they are and what they're becoming and what they were, this is important, always intended to be. They were always intended to be this. And the fall and their own sin and their own fears and the power of the world in their heart had dragged them away and distracted them from this. The rejection of man and the fact that human beings don't do treasure very well and the fact that Jesus Christ restores people in the truth of who they are. It is God's work. Philippians 2 teaches us that even as we, quote, work out our salvation with fear and trembling, it is He who is working in us to His perfect will, to His own desire. We aren't passive members. We're active members of His transformation in our lives. That's what's going on. We're not passive, but we're also not the driver. We aren't the one who make those changes happen. He allows us to be a part of it. We're incapable of it without Him. We've been convinced of a good thing. We talked about the fact that Jesus won the battle and then invited us to join the army. He won the game and then he invited us to join the team. That's a nice order to do that in. That's very kind of him to win the battle first and then invite us to be part of the army. That's how you want that to work out. See, the step two of plan A was being played out here in John. John 15, 26 says, this is Jesus teaching to his disciples, When the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. This is his words to these 12. This was step one, is what I'm going to do, and the power of the Spirit's going to come and bear witness to you of who I am. Then you're going to bear witness to the rest of the world. Step two, he's done step one, transforming people into his witnesses. So we've seen Peter's testimony. Maybe you've not read it in a while. Think about who Peter was, the, the, the attention deficit guy that he is, the, the man who, who um, is, is very passionate one moment and then very terrified the next moment, uh, the man who seems to, to connect to God, to Jesus well, but then the next thing you know, he's drifting away. He is the one who proclaims that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the very next chapter has to be told by Jesus, get behind me, Satan. Okay, that's Peter. Listen to this just 50 days later. 50 days after the end of the book of John. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. I'm going to read his whole sermon. This may be the most brilliant sermon ever written for evangelism certainly given his population. Here he is back in Jerusalem, the very place where Jesus was crucified. And now he's going to go toe-to-toe with the people who he was in a locked room because they were afraid of them, just 50 days. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since they are Baptists. Sorry, since they are in the third hour of the day. I love that, the third hour. That's his argument. It's only 9 a.m., people. Anyway, okay, so just some comedy. I I actually think he's starting his sermon with a joke, like every good pastor, right? These people aren't drunk. It's only 9 a.m. Anyway, so, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. He jumps immediately to the prophecies. Listen to this. I'll try not to interrupt again. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. 
Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and the vapor of smoke and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day that shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it's not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You make me full of gladness in your presence, brothers. I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he would not be abandoned to Hades, nor would his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and all of us that are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he said to him, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Dang. If there had been a mic, he'd have dropped it at the end of that. This, this is the gospel proclaimed. The person you're waiting for has come. And God has accomplished this mighty thing through him. We get to have joy in the knowledge that he is transforming us into who we were always intended to be. That's the, that's the joy. That's why, by the way, we can have joy in sufferings. What James talks about in his letter, that we can have joy in sufferings. This isn't some silly little paste on a smile happiness. That's not what James is saying. Hey, you should pretend like you're happy even when you're suffering. You should feel like you're not in pain even when you are. You should feel like you're all excited even when you're depressed and discouraged and in despair. That's ridiculous. No, no, listen to what James says here. It's not that James is pretending like this, everything's just going to be all right. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness with its full effect may be that we may be made complete lacking in nothing. That's the idea. That we can have joy in the knowledge that even the hardships we face, that there's a result from that. See, we're borrowing happiness from the future. We're borrowing satisfaction from another time. That's what joy is. Joy is when even when we're in a hardship and in a terrible situation, when we can look to what God is doing and what he's going to do, and we can see the results of his work, and we can experience the happiness, the excitement, the 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 whatever, the pleasure of that, the gratification of that thing that's coming, we can experience it now. That's part of what it means to be an active member of our lives. See, anxiety is the opposite. Anxiety is when you're in a perfectly good situation, but because you're focusing your attention on the fear that is to come, you experience it now. Welcome to human beings. But we have the ability to look ahead and see, look at what God is doing. Man, this stinks right now. 
but I'll be more patient in the future. I'll have more faith in the future. I can be stronger in the future. I can be more dependent. I said in the first service, and I'll say it again, don't let God know that I said this, but I have seen about myself that I tend to pray more when I face hardship than when things are going well. Anybody else? Don't raise your hand. It's not the kind of God we serve. I'm, pretend, I'm playing here. That's, but there, there's a sense in me that, that has this, like, I don't want to encourage him to bring hardship just so I'll pray more, right? Again, that's not the kind of God we serve, but that's a, in, in my brain to realize, of course, that's sometimes that's when I'm growing, as in the pain and hardship. And here's what's wild. Apparently, we need this. We need a tool to be able to interpret, to understand what's going on when we face this hardship. What do we do when we face challenges and difficulties and death and pain? If we don't have someplace else to borrow joy from, if we don't have a hope of a purpose or an intentionality to look ahead and say, there's value in this. I may not feel it now, but it's coming someday. Someday I will look back on this and laugh. Someday I'll look back on this with joy. And I'll experience this in a different way. Um, my parents are here today, and my dad sometimes used to talk about, I don't know if I'm going to say the exact, exactly the right way, but it's some version of like, in 500 years, how will this matter? In 1,000 years, in 10,000 years, in 100,000 years, how will this matter? When you're in eternity, how will you look back on this and see what God was doing now? How am I being transformed now? This may stink, but I will have joy then about it. And so I can borrow that, what God is doing in our lives. The hope that there's some purpose in this. So how badly do we need this? Did anybody read the, um, this last week an article came out in the Wall Street Journal um, by a therapist about what she tells her um, atheist clients when they say, what do I tell my children about God? What do I tell my children about heaven? Because the interesting thing, it's the instinct among children is to believe that there is a God. It's actually their natural instinct. Um, they, they actually are the, according to some research, the most resistant to naturalist arguments. The, the arguments that there's nothing but the material world, the children are super resistant to those arguments. You just can't get through because they're going, yeah, whatever. Like that, that makes no sense. There's an intuition that God has placed in us, what the writer of Ecclesiastes says, eternity put in the hearts of men. And so there's an instinct with that. So what, guess what this therapist, by the way, who's Jewish, and as I understand it, relatively agnostic, not very religious, maybe I'm wrong about that, but is Jewish. Guess what she tells her atheist clients? Lie. Lie to your children. Tell them you believe there is a God. Tell them you believe there is a heaven. You know why? Because it's so psychologically harmful for children to not believe in it that she tells parents lie. Now, that's not the way I would go with that. I would say, figure out why it is you have to lie about this. What is this? See, this is, let me read this. Let me just read a couple of paragraphs from this article. 2018 study in the American Journal of Epidemiology examined how being raised in a family with religious or spiritual beliefs affects mental health. Harvard researchers had examined religious involvement within the longitudinal data set of approximately 5,000 people with controls in place for sociodemographic characteristics and maternal health. That's just saying this was a good study. Okay? The result, children or teens who reported attending a religious service at least once per week, just that factor alone, there's a lot more factors, but just that one, scored higher on psychological well-being measurements, significantly higher, had lower risks of mental illness. What? 
Weekly attendance was associated with higher rates of volunteerism, a stronger sense of mission, the ability to forgive, and lower probabilities of drug use and early sexual behavior. It's a pity then that the U.S. has seen a 20% decrease in attendance at formal religious services in the past 20 years. According to the Gallup report earlier this year, in 2018, the American Family Survey showed that half, nearly half of adults under 30 do not identify with any religion. So the problem is, now, the, the, by the way, the, this person, the way this person continues to explain this is through the lens of what's called functional faith, meaning you should believe it because it works. I would say, maybe you need to take it a little further and come to the realization that it works because it's true. And yes, of course there are positive results to believing the truth. This is what John has been doing throughout this entire book, is giving evidence after evidence after evidence, witness testimony, eyewitness testimony after eyewitness testimony for the proof of this. And we are the continuation of plan A. When was the last time someone heard your testimony? When was the last time somebody heard you witness, you as a witness for the work of Christ? We tell life stories, which is great, a great way of getting to know each other. But a life story is not a testimony unless it proclaims what God has done or what someone else has done, but in our case, what God has done. That isn't the same as being a martyr, as being a witness or being a testifier. Here's what struck me as I was thinking about it. Then what is our role? I think it's really rare for us for most part nowadays to be witnesses to God's goodness. To be, to be someone who stands on, who get, climbs up into the witness stand to proclaim the goodness of who God is, of what he has done and what he is doing. I think that's relatively rare nowadays. We're afraid of that. But I think even more than that, what's happened is we've stepped out of the role of witness and we've put ourselves in the role of juror. That what we're doing all the time is evaluating God for what he's doing and how he's doing. And we're sitting there as a juror trying to decide how we're going to think and feel about what God is doing all the time. And so we're in the role of juror, or God forbid, judge. There comes a point when it's time to get out of the juror box and get into the witness stand. Where we have to be able to the ones who proclaim the good things that God has done for us. And to teach a whole new generation about those things so they can tell a generation, so they can tell a generation, or as it's been worked backwards, how that's been. Even when we sit here celebrating Advent, Advent doesn't just mean baby Jesus. Advent means God came here. An important person is coming. That's what an Advent is. Emmanuel, God with us. That's what these people were. Gabriel was a witness to what God was doing. He testified on behalf of what God was doing. Mary and Joseph. We listened to Mary's song this morning. This was a testimony to the good things that God had done for her. That's what the Magnificat is. Joseph is, a, is evidence that, that Jesus was the Son of God. There has, something had to convince this Jewish man to marry a pregnant Jewish woman. What would cause him to do that? It's either his child, and even that might not do it. It's either his child, or an angel came to him and told him, listen, it's okay, do it. And then Joseph did that's a further evidence. John leaping in his mother's womb. Elizabeth and Zechariah, their story as eyewitnesses doesn't make a lot of sense outside of this being God. The prophetess, Anna, the shepherds, and we could spend hours on the shepherds, the heavenly hosts, 
the wise men from the east, the little drummer boy. These are all eyewitnesses. No one laughed. Wow. He's like, okay. Oh, um, what do they teach you people at church? Anyway, um, so, okay, the little drummer boy wasn't actually there. But the, the, I mean, as far as we know, I mean, it could have been, right? I mean, it's argument from silence. But here's why I mentioned the little drummer boy. Well, take just a second. That song was a song that I always hated growing up. Um, because I think the bum bum bums are really annoying in the song, and it's exhausting. Like the song is just exhausting. And so, um, but so as a as an adult, literally, how many of you? There's a really narrow a, age here that I'm going to hit here. How many of you remember the Animaniacs? Yeah. So everybody within about ten years of me, right? So so that's the Animaniacs. The Animaniacs were a, a, a Warner Brothers cartoon, and uh, that j- it lasted for a while and kind of failed. And it was. Um, but uh, had some pretty funny skits. But there was some, there was an episode, but during the Christmas episode, which is shocking nowadays that anybody would do this. Um, this isn't nowadays, I guess. <laughs> shocking that 25 years ago that anybody would do this. Is, is it 35 years ago that anybody would do this? Um, that there would be an uh, a, a episode like that. I can't show it. It took too long. I thought about it. But here's what happens in it is they tell the story of the little drummer boy by the song. I'd never listened to the words. I mean, the rumpa bum bums annoyed me so much I'd never heard any of the rest of it. So here's the plot of the song. You, may, you probably all like, we all know this, but so the plot of the song is that, that the wise men show up, the shepherds are there, and I'm not going to correct the nativity. That's not for today. Maybe we'll do that next year. Correct the nativity scene for you. But, um, but, but so the wise men are there, and they show up, and these, these shepherds are there, and the shepherds are represented by the three animaniac kids. And so they're, they're there, and they come, and the wise men dump out gold, and then this expensive incense for a priest and then this expensive spice for wrapping a dead body. Again, there's a series of sermons there. And they get dumped out in front of these kids. And, of course, now I can understand in an honor-shame society like, is, like the, Jewish, the Jewish society is, what would actually have happened would the shepherds immediately would have said, Oh, no, we didn't bring anything. And in the, in the video, it actually shows, I have a still shot of just the one shot that I liked so much. There's a still shot of them. They, they reach in their pockets, and of course, you know, you know, like malls fly out of their pockets. That always, And they turn their pockets inside out, and they have nothing. And the, the horror on their face to realize, and, and the one in the middle with the drummer with the drum turns to the baby and says, in the, in the show, for the first time this made sense to me, turns and says, baby Jesus, I'm just a poor boy too. I have no gifts to bring that's fit to give a king. And there's this horrible silence that I had never identified with or connected with. This is, this is Peter in Luke 5 we talked about last week. Jesus performs this miracle and Peter falls before him and says, depart from me. Get away from me. I have nothing to give you. I have nothing to offer you. I'm just going to be a hindrance for you. Move on to someone else. This, this moment of realization of going, I've got nothing Nothing you need. I have nothing worth giving you. And then the, here's how the story continues. Though it doesn't end there. It ends with, with the child, the little drummer, but this little boy who happens to have a, a, a dinky little drum with him, probably like that, going, I mean, I can play my drum. So he does. And it has that funny little middle section there. You know, Mary's nodding her head and the ox and the lamb are keeping time, which in the cartoon, I think they actually turn into a jazz band and start. <laughs> and, then, and then what happens is he looks to Jesus and Jesus, who did not smile at the gold or the frankincense or the myrrh, smiles at him. That's the whole message of this song. It's the message we're stuck with today as us. 
You might go, well, I don't have a story to tell. Yes, you do. If God has done anything for you, we need to talk about that. We need to proclaim that. We tell each other. It's part of why we have life groups. We can't all do that on a Sunday morning. But when you get together with a small group and you get to tell your story about what God is doing, or when you sit down and talk with a friend about what God has done in your life, there's no arguing that when you say, this is what's happened to me. That's what all of these people were. This continues with us. In Peter's letter in 1 Peter 1.12, he says, it was revealed to them. He's talking about the prophets and the original prophets and teachers. It was revealed to them they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. See, we've got this message that's been given to us by the prophets and by the apostles and by the teachers. We're supposed to be filled with an inexpressible joy because of this, an inexpressible joy that causes us to reach out to others. We borrow the happiness and the gratification and the pleasure from another time in history. We experience the joy and the good gifts. This great cloud of witnesses, as Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews talks about in chapter 11, look down on us and say, hey, this is what we did. Now you go top that. You go do more than that. That's what that passage is about. It is our job to have the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.18, the apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's our job now. Now we tell the story of what God has done for us and what God is doing in us. We're humble enough to be shaken and heated and molded and changed. The recognition in every single one of us that we need that, and we continue to need it. Because here's the deal. John wasn't going to hang around forever. If the Apostle John was going to be around forever, we wouldn't need to do all this because John could do it. I mean, John could be wandering around the world, and he could have him throw him off buildings and boil him alive and have it not harm him. And he got, now let me tell you about Jesus. John could be doing this as a 2,000-year-old man. He could be the witness, but he isn't. He died. He trained a whole bunch of students who then trained a whole bunch of students who trained a whole bunch of students. John died. He doesn't get to hang around forever, but we do in that we get to take up where those who taught from him and taught from him and taught from him and taught from him left off. We get to pick up the message doesn't have to die with us, down to us. This is the root of our joy. We are borrowing joy from the identity and value of the gospel of the advent that God came near. And we borrow from the fact that a baby, a savior, and that there's going to be a second advent in the future when he's coming back. From the good news of great joy until he comes quickly, we are like John, his martyrs. Maybe literally someday. In the dying perspective. But the martyr, it isn't that the martyr has to die, it's that the martyr is willing to. He proclaims the good news. He testifies no matter what it costs him. We sang joy to the world this morning. Um, a lot of people, and I, didn't, I had not put this together until this week, but that Joy to the World is actually Watts, um, uh, Isaac Watts, who wrote Joy to the World, was writing about the second coming. And when you see the, the lines from it, uh, the, I think it's the third verse or whatever, one of the verses, Joy to the world, no more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. This is when he comes back and makes all things right. He has begun that. Step one, he came, experienced life as a man, 
Step two, he sent us into the world through the power of his Holy Spirit. Step three, he comes back with plan A. When he does, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. That's what will happen when he comes back. We can live that out in our lives now as believers. But for the world to experience the curse to be completely eradicated, he's going to have to come back eradicate it with fire, and start over again with a new heaven and a new earth. So if there isn't enough joy in our lives, it's probably because we aren't sharing enough of Jesus with our lives. We aren't proclaiming the power of who he is and what he's done with our lives, with our words, with the way we relate to family and friends as we seek to live this out for us to share Jesus with our lives, that our words, our actions, our tone, even our expressions testify to the joy we have in him, the hope we have in him, the peace we have in him, the love we have in him. That's why all four candles lead to the Christ candle. They all proceed from him. Now we go and tell it. Now there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Yeah, not just then, for the last 2,000 years because he's still doing it and now with us. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the power of your word to transform our lives, to give our lives meaning and purpose. That we aren't just a, a, a speck of biological material frantically racing through life. Instead, we are eternal beings filled with a spirit that allows us to relate to you. Eternity is in our hearts we can look to you and understand the truth of this gospel. I pray that anyone who's not convinced of the truth of your gospel will be. That your spirit will help them be convinced of the truth. That they will know the truth and it will set them free. Father, I pray that you would give us the right words through the power of your spirit to live this out. We pray this in the power of your Holy Spirit to sanctify us. We pray this out of obedience to your Son, Jesus Christ, the sprinkling of his blood. We pray this in submission to you, our Father. Thank you that you are God who gives good gifts and lets us be involved in what you're doing. Amen.